We've been covering Ephesians 2, the first 10 verses, and we're getting to the conclusion of just that little section there. And uh, for those of you who haven't figured it out, um, I, uh, we're going through the book of Ephesians. We started all the way from chapter 1, verse 1. We're going all the way to the end of this book. And, and really, it's with the purpose of helping us to understand God's vision for the church. But as we go through these first three chapters, we see a lot of deep and beautiful theology from the Apostle Paul as he is just laying out the wonderful truths of the gospel. These truths of the gospel should lead us to giving praise and glory to our good Lord. They should help humble us and help us understand that we had no role in it. And they should motivate us to really share that message of truth with the lost to those who do not know the Lord, uh, even within our own family, uh, maybe co-workers, um, people in the world that you may run into. Uh, we are surrounded by people that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ when they desperately need to know the Lord. In fact, when I think about this life, you know, we all understand that this life is temporal. I remember even from a, a young kid wondering, and this is before I knew the Lord Jesus Christ, but wondering what is our purpose here on this world? What are we to do? Why, why are we here? And that's a question that I'm not the only one that's asked that. That question has been asked time and time again by many people from many parts of the world in all kinds of different walks of life. And when we think about purposes in life, I mean, I can't help but to think about, for instance, when I was in corporate America, you know, they talked about how companies should always have a mission statement. They should always have a purpose, something that they're looking to achieve. And even as they were looking to hire workers, as they're going out and seeking the best talent to bring into their company, what studies have shown is that workers, though they often will seek more money, what really drives them to do a good job is a strong sense of purpose. Um, purpose is actually more motivational than money. Of course, the money has to be there. But purpose, if the purpose is strong, if it's something that the employee actually believes in, they're going to be more motivated to do a good job. And when applied to life, we have many examples of people's purpose when we look around us. But purpose can be very vague. For instance, some people, if you ask them what their purpose is, they might just say, well, my purpose is just to exist. Well, that's not very helpful, right? And that's not going to motivate us in any very specific way, because if your purpose is just to exist, sure, it's a purpose, but it's not a very good purpose. And then there are people with unrealistic purposes. I have a close um, family friend in Thailand um, this, uh, this son who, uh, not very disciplined, um, doesn't do very well in school, not very responsible. And I sat down with him and tried to talk to him one time and I asked him, what is it you want to be? What is your purpose in life? And his response back was he wants to be a rock star. Well, that's not a very realistic purpose, right? Um, because there's only so many people that make it in that kind of business. And certainly you're not going to make it with that kind of um, weak work ethic. That's what I was thinking as I was talking to him. But we also have self-centered purposes, and these are more common in our world today. Uh, my purpose is just to be happy. Uh, my purpose is to, to be joyful and, and, to, and to make the most of this life. And usually that translates into trying to make as much money as I can or wanting to live in the areas that I want to live. Or to receive the kind of recognition that I think I want to receive. Or some people want to leave a legacy. Some people say, well, it's not really about money. I just want to do something that will be remembered even after I die. 
So there's a lot of different purposes that people can come up with in life. But for us as Christians, our purpose should be very clear. Our purpose should be rooted in the word of God. It should be rooted in who we are. It should be rooted in our understanding of his word and how it applies to our life. And that is very much the case this morning as we look to finish out these first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. As you see in your bulletin, as a reminder, our purpose is to understand God's undeserved goodness in providing salvation to you so that you will be joyfully moved to serve him. Our life, our purpose is all about serving God. Our purpose is about serving his purposes. We want what he wants. We desire what he desires. We seek to glorify him. And as we've read through this section, we have learned a whole lot about just our need for the gospel and what God did to help awaken us to the gospel. And this morning, as we continue, we're going to finish out the last two points of your bulletin, and we're going to be driving towards what is our overriding purpose as Christians in life. Now, as we go through, let me go ahead and review just what we have learned over the past few weeks before we start our passage for this morning. Starting in verse 1, we see that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We remember in looking at these verses that we did nothing good to deserve our salvation. These three verses not only described each and every one of us before we came to know Christ, but they describe every single person who has ever lived on this planet aside from Jesus Christ himself. And what we see in these three verses is that there is nothing good. There is nothing to commend us to God. There is nothing that earns God's favor on the basis of how we live. In fact, when you look at this again, it shows us what our behavior patterns were. In verse 2, we walked according to the course of this world. We followed after the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. In verse 3, we formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. We were indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were simply just doing whatever we wanted in rebellion to God. And that's why in verse 2 and verse 3, we are called sons of disobedience. We're called children of wrath. And as a reminder, that wrath, when we hear children of wrath, it is the wrath of God that sits upon us until we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The fact that we are not thrown into hell right now at this moment is by the mercy and the kindness of God meant to bring us to repentance, to know his son. And that lead, led us to the second proof of God's undeserved goodness. That first one was the absolute need for the gospel. The second one was the divine intercession of the gospel. From verses 4 to 7, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so we see God's actions over us in those verses. And we see very clearly, we look at verse 5 again, and it says, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And that's not talking about the fact, that's not, that's not saying that we're physically dead. We know, in fact, that we were physically alive. When you read those first three verses, we know that we are physically alive because we were acting in rebellion against God. But when verse 5 says, when we were dead in our transgressions, it shows us that there was no change in our behavior. There was no change in our depravity. There was no change in our sinful rebellion against God when God chose to intervene and save us. There was nothing that we did to deserve that salvation. And so that's why we read, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And not only that, but raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. God, because he was rich in mercy, and according to Old Testament terminology, he is abounding in loving kindness. Because of that, out of his great love with which he loved us, he saved us. And then you saw in verse 7, as a reminder, it said, So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The reason why he made you alive. The reason why he brought you salvation. The reason why he helped you to bring you to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is in order to demonstrate the kindness of his riches and grace towards the world. Not only in this age, but in successive ages all the way until the end state. Because while the world acts in rebellion against God, you who are saved by Jesus Christ are living proof of God's grace in your life. You are living proof that through the power of God, which by the way, remember at the end of chapter 1, that was Paul's emphasis, was the power of God. That by the power of God, you are now living a new life that is no longer in rebellion, but a new life that now glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we demonstrate God's kindness towards us. And that leads us to our third point, which is the start of our message this morning. Our third point in this message this morning, and you'll see in your bulletin, it is the singular credit with the gospel. The singular credit with the gospel. So the first was the absolute need for the gospel. Second was the divine intercession of the gospel. And now we get to point three, which is the singular credit with the gospel. And starting in verse eight, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And in verse 10 reads, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so we see there verses 8 through 10. I'm going to break that out into two sections. The third section, which is the singular credit with the Gospels from verses 8 and 9. And then verse 10 is going to be our final point. But as we look at verse 8, it starts off with, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is a wonderful statement in and of itself. And it's not hard to understand. I mean, we can read that and see that it is by God's grace, that it is not by our works. But when Paul starts off with the word for, when he says for by grace, that for is a special word that connects it to what had just been said. 
And when you see that word for, it can serve one of two purposes. Either it's giving further explanation or it's giving us the cause. It's either explanatory or it's giving us cause. And in this case, it's further explaining what we had just read, how God had made us alive together with Christ, seated us with him, um, raised us up with him. And this is giving us further explanation to say, to really summarize that for by grace, you have been saved through faith. He is reemphasizing it once again that it was grace that provided salvation. And grace, as you may remember, the definition is unmerited favor. It means we receive favor by, from God that we did nothing to deserve. But it's a lot more than even just unmerited favor. Because unmerited favor by itself almost implies that we were in a neutral position. We had done neither good nor bad, and out of the favor of God, he decided to just show us favor out of his kindness. No, we actually deserve the very exact opposite. We deserve the wrath of God. That's why we were children of wrath. We deserve the wrath of God, and so God not only withheld the wrath that we did deserve, but he gave us favor that we didn't deserve. That is the amazing work and the power of God in us with regards to the gospel. So he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, when you look again, look at back at verse 5. Verse 5 talked about that grace. At the end of verse 5, we see by grace you have been saved. And verse 7 it reads, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So Paul is just repeating once again, summarizing once again, that all of this is by grace. Now, when we see that it says you have been saved, um, what we have here is what's called the perfect tense um, in, in the Greek. Um, it's Obviously, it's, it's a past tense. What, what's happening here it says you have been saved. But, but um, more specifically, it's a perfect tense. What's the difference? Well, past tense says you were saved. OK, you were saved. It just says what happened in the past. But perfect tense, you have been saved. The idea is that you were saved, but the effects of that salvation continue on to today. You are continually saved. See, if I just said you were saved, that might leave open the door for someone to say, well, are you still saved? When I say you have been saved, the assumption is that you are continuously saved. And so not only is God's power at work in you to provide you with that salvation, God's work is at you at work in you to make sure that you continue in his will, that you continue to be sanctified, that you continue to act as a child of God rather than a child of disobedience or a child of wrath. And so what we have here is, for by grace you have been saved. And then when we get to the, the, the final prepositional phrase there, we see through faith. Now, through faith. The word through is really the instrument. How was it that you were saved? Now, some have argued, because it says through faith, but it doesn't specify the faith of who. Now, I think most of us would look at this and we would think, well, that's the faith of us as believers, and I believe that is true, though some have argued that this is not about the faith of the believer, but this is about the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and they would argue that from verses five through seven, it's talking about the work that Jesus Christ did. And so we are saved through the faith of Jesus Christ. Well, certainly Jesus Christ was faithful. He was faithful to the will of God. He was faithful to obey God. He was faithful to all that he was called to do. And so when we see the word faith, obviously we want to take a look at the context and try to understand what faith is being talked about here. 
And really, if you just look through the letter of Ephesians, look back at chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and he addresses it to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So we see in 1.1 that clearly the word faith is being applied to believers. We are faithful in Christ Jesus. And when you go down to verse 13, verse 13, we read, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That word for believed, that is the verb form of the same word used for faith. So it's essentially faith in verb form. Belief and faith are the same word in the Greek. So when it says you have believed, clearly that is the response from the believer, from the Christian. And then even in verse 15, he writes, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you. So we see in those three examples in chapter one that Paul is talking about the faith of believers. And so I have no reason to believe that he's suddenly talking about the faith of Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace, but through faith. But that brings up a question. If salvation is not by works, how do we classify faith? You see, in this phrase, when we take a look at it, you are saved by the grace of God. But if he just said you are saved by the grace of God, but said nothing else, then someone could hear that and assume that salvation is for everyone. But through faith helps to qualify who that salvation is for. That salvation is for those who respond in faith to the gospel message. It's not simply by grace God saved everyone, but by grace God saved some through their faith. Through faith. Now, is faith a work? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But if we think about faith, let's think about that word, um, what it means. Um, Faith is trust or confidence. Um, It could be trust or confidence in people. It could be trust or confidence in false gods. And obviously it could be trust or confidence in the truth, in the true God. But faith is not blind. This is one of the mistakes that non-believers often make when they are characterizing Christians, that we just follow after Jesus Christ based on blind faith. There's nothing blind about that faith at all, because when you heard the gospel, you heard the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ, what he did, how he was raised up from the dead, and the promise that God provided to us. It's a rational faith. It's an understanding that when you look at verses 1 to 3 that talk about our depravity, how everyone is lost and dead in their trespasses and sins, that is a rational description of man's condition, and we see it all around us. And when we think about the personhood of Jesus Christ, when we think about the the actual historical accuracy of our Lord Jesus Christ, and there have been many who have tried to attack the historical accuracy, even if you don't have the Bible— You can make a much more rational argument for Jesus Christ than you can against him. So this is not a blind faith as people often make it. Simply, faith is that we believe what is true. We believe what is true, though we don't see it with our own eyes and we may not be able to produce actual evidence um, in a material way. But it's truth that we simply know to be true. 
And there's a common analogy of a chair, right? I mean, when you sit down on a chair, you don't think about whether that chair is going to hold you up or not. You simply assume that it will. That that's an example of faith in that chair, that it's going to hold you up, that you're not going to suddenly just fall to to the floor. Now, that might happen. But all of you, when you sat down, no one thought that 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 is what faith is. It's faith of what is true. And so when sometimes we, we talk about faith being a decision and I, I, I've hear this um, hear this a lot. And, and let me just clarify the decision that you make for the Lord Jesus Christ upon hearing the gospel. The decision itself is not faith. The decision is your response to faith. You see the difference? You see, you, you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of what he did and what his promises are to you. When you hear the gospel, you either believe it to be true or you don't. And so when you, so, you know, when you make that decision, you're really making a decision already based upon faith that you have received. And I'll talk a, a little bit more about this in a moment because we're going to get into some of the, the rest of what verse 8 says. In fact, if we continue on here in verse 8... Starting from the beginning, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it says, and not of yourselves. And that, not of yourselves. Now, when we look at that second half of verse 8, we start with, and that, not of yourselves. The question is, what is that referring to? When he says, that is not of yourselves. And this here, this is where the, the Greek is providing us with a little bit more detail than the English can possibly provide us. You see, in the English, we have, um, we have words, we have nouns that aren't always gender, genderized. So, we, you know, we obviously, when we're t- referring to a woman, we'll say he, she, that's feminine. And we're referring to a man, we'll say he or him, and that's, uh, that's masculine. Um, but in the Greek, there are masculine and feminine and neuter genders for every noun and, and every pronoun that it will use. And in this case, in the Greek, the that, that is actually a singular neutered um, pronoun. And so some have argued that this refers to faith, but faith, uh, then the counter argument is that faith is actually a feminine word. All right. So that's a very technical explanation. But some people will look at that and say, well, that can't be referring to faith because there's not alignment with regards to how those pronouns and, and the gender line up. But really what that is referring to, it may not refer directly to faith, but it's really referring to the entire statement as a whole, that by grace you have been saved through faith. It is referring to the entire statement. It is referring to that entire truth. And when we think of that first half of verse 8, that by grace you have been saved through faith, that itself is a summary of what we had just read from verses 5 through 7, that though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive. That he gave you spiritual life. And so the, that is referring to all of this picture of salvation. And what is Paul saying here? He's saying that is not of yourselves. Your salvation is not of yourselves. You contributed nothing to that. Well, some will say, well, that's being redundant. Yeah. What do, you th- what, what do you think Paul is doing? He's trying to emphasize the truth that salvation is not something that you did. Salvation is not something that you contributed to. And he's repeating it in multiple ways. He already said, by grace through faith, you have been saved. But he is re-emphasizing it to say that all this, this salvation is not from yourselves. Rather, it is what? A gift of God. It is the gift of God. And what is a gift? A gift is not something that you earn. 
All right, when you go to work and you work your hours, you expect a paycheck. Maybe not on that day, maybe it's a Friday or maybe it's twice a month, whatever it may be, but on payday, you expect a paycheck. And you would not consider that paycheck a gift, right? You say, no, I earned that money. That's not a gift. Now, if the boss decides to give you a bonus that you were not expecting, that you were not promised, that's a gift. That's a gift. It is something that you did not work in order to earn. It was simply given to you. So salvation is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. Now, this is very important to grasp with regards to the gospel, because when we think back in history, think back to the Reformation of the early 1500s, one of the dividing points between Protestants and Catholics was this concept of justification by faith. This idea that your salvation is based upon faith alone and nothing else. What the Roman Catholic Church responded back with was that justification is by both faith and works. So in other words, you have faith and that's by grace, but you also work for it as well. So it's both put together. But what we see here in this passage in Ephesians chapter 2, and especially in verses 8 and 9, what Paul cannot emphasize enough over and over and over again, that no, it is not a result of anything that you have done. And so even when you look at the end of, when you look at verse 9, after verse 8, we go to verse 9. It says, not as a result of works. That's Paul, once again, reemphasizing again that it is not a result of works. So even the faith, even the faith that you had in the Lord Jesus Christ was not a work of your own. It was not a work of your own. It was given to you by God. In fact, let me just read for you a, a few verses First, let, let's think about grace. Romans 11, verse 6. Romans 11, verse 6. I'll just read this to you. Paul writes, But if it is by grace, it is no longer the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So that makes it pretty clear. If it was by both grace and works, then you can just take grace and throw it out. That's what Paul is saying. If works are involved in it, then it's not by grace. That means you have earned it. But what he is saying, and I'll read it again, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, he writes, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So we see that salvation is grace, and grace is opposed to works. There is no works that we contributed to this. There is nothing that we contributed to this. Even our faith cannot be considered a work. Our faith is a response. Okay, the, 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 when you confess the Lord Jesus Christ, that was a response to what you were then convinced of what is true. You were then convinced of what is true. In fact, I think of um, there was a philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal. Um, Blaise Pascal, he lived in the 17th century, and he had something called Pascal's Wager. What is Pascal's Wager? Well, Pascal's Wager is this. He, he, he's basically taking um, the, you know, this, this uh, theory of probability, and he's applying it to religion. He's saying this. It's like flipping a coin, right? I mean, you flip a coin, and it's going to be either heads or tails, 50-50 uh, chance. But in this case, we're talking about God. 
And God might exist or he might, he might not exist. And his wager was this. He said, look, if you live your life as if you believe that God existed and he really does exist, then that's good. You'll be saved. But if you live your life as if God existed and it turns out he didn't exist, well, what did you lose? You really didn't lose much. And so his wager was this. Why don't you just live your life as if God existed? Because that's going to be much better for you than if you live as if he didn't exist. Can I tell you? If that is your mindset towards the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not faith. Faith is belief. It is trusting what is true. See, if you're taking two options, you're saying, well, this option provides uh, more benefits and there's really no downsides because if this doesn't end up being true, what's the worst that can happen to me? If that's the way you are sorting through your own logic and sorting through your own reasoning for why you should accept Christ, and if that's why you come forth and say, okay, I'm a Christian, guess what? You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. You have to believe that this is true. The faith is faith, no matter what, you know, it's not, it's not a, well, I'll believe it as long as these things happen. And, you know, some people will say, well, I'll believe you, God, as long as you continue to bless me. I believe you, God, as long as you answer my prayer here and there. No, that's not faith either. That's just putting yourself on the throne and making God your slave to do what you want. No, faith is believing what is objectively true. And what is objectively true is that we were created, that there is a real creator, that he is holy, he is perfect in every way, and that we are sinners. And when you learn those objective truths from the word of God, you can look around this world and I tell you, there is no other book, there is no other religious text, there is no other philosophy that explains the world as thoroughly and as accurately and as concretely as the word of God does. And when you consider the Lord Jesus Christ, that God sent him into the world in order to die for your sins, that that he would live a perfect life in in order to fulfill the, the law that you could not fulfill yourself. And that he would go to the cross and that his sins, that that he was sinless, but our sins will be paid for at the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe that is the only way to salvation, that is the only way you could ever stand holy before God. I was just talking to uh, one of our own this morning, talking about some of the evangelistic materials, Way of the Master, if you've ever been exposed to them. And the way Way of the Master works, Ray Comfort, he has a lot of materials where you can talk to people about whether they're really good or not. And you can, you can convince them, really through the Sermon on the Mount, that, well, you may not be a murderer, but look at here. It says that if you're even angry, you've committed murder in your heart. Okay, you may not be an adulterer, but it says here, if you've looked at, at a woman or if you've looked at a man with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery of the heart. No one will stand justified before God. We know that to be true. We know that to be true. And only true faith, only believing that Jesus Christ is really the Son of God and that he died on the cross in order to pay for your sins, in order that if you believe in him, you will not perish, but you will have life everlasting. That is something that you need to be able to believe without a doubt that that is true no matter what else I experience in this life, no matter what someone else says to me, I know without a doubt that is true. And for many of you, when you were saved, when you were converted, when you made that confession, you didn't make that confession because it was the best of a number of different options. You didn't make that confession because you felt merely peer pressure to make that kind of confession. 
You made that confession if you were truly saved at that moment. You made that confession because the gospel spoke to your heart and you realized for the first time just how much you really needed the Lord Jesus Christ. And nobody else could provide that salvation. Nobody. Because nobody could live the perfect life that Jesus Christ lived. No one could pay for your sins on the cross the way Jesus Christ did. And not only that, but the proof of your salvation is, your, is the change in, in your character afterwards. You know, so that's why we, when we look at verses 8 and 9, we, we see here over and over again, Paul, he, he's emphasizing over and over again, by grace you have been saved through faith. If that's not enough, he's going to say, then it's not of yourselves. If that's not enough, he's going to say, it's the gift of God. And if that's not enough, he's going to repeat it again. He's going to say, not as a result of works. You know what Paul is doing here? He's repeating over and over and over and over again. It's not you, it's all God. And the result, the result is that so no one may boast. No one may boast. Boasting makes you the object rather than God. Boasting makes you the object of worship and trust. It invites praise of yourself. And so sometimes when we look back at our testimony, when we look back at how we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I understand what you mean when you say I made a decision for Christ. But the truth is you were given faith and based upon that faith, you made that decision. It was God who deserves the credit. It wasn't based upon you saying, OK, I chose Christ. No, Christ chose you and you responded in faith. Your decision was simply you acting upon the faith that God had given you. And that's why God deserves all singular credit. But there is a result that comes out of this. And that leads us to the fourth and final proof of God's undeserved goodness to us through the gospel. We just covered the singular credit with the gospel. The final point is the glorious purpose from the gospel. The glorious purpose from the gospel. Verse 10, we read, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, it starts off by saying we are his workmanship. Now, what does that mean, that we are his workmanship? We'll take a look at, uh, flip back to the book of Romans. Romans is a few books um, over to the left from Ephesians. You'll go back uh, past um, First and Second Corinthians. You'll get to Romans. And when you get to Romans chapter 1, look at verse 20. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. In fact, I'll, I'll start from verse 18. Um, and by the way, this verse, um, just as God's word always does, speaks so succinctly to the issue that surrounds us. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what's going on all around us today. Men are suppressing truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within, within them for God made it evident to them. And then look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So what we read here in Romans 1 is that mankind has the proof of God's existence just through all of creation, just through all of creation. 
But towards the end of verse 20, when he says that his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. That portion, what has been made, in the Greek, it's the same word for workmanship. We are his workmanship. The idea is that we are the creation of God. So when, when Paul uses this word in Ephesians, it says we are his workmanship, it's the same as the creation of all the heavens and the earth. That the heavens and the earth is the workmanship of God, just as we are the workmanship of God. But we're going to get additional details because we are not simply just the workmanship of God. We're going to receive even more information. This workmanship is based upon a certain action from God. Going back to Ephesians 2 verse 10, going back to Ephesians 2 verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That word for created, that's the same word used when describing that God created all the heavens and the earth. In fact, when you look at Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Let's go look at Ephesians 3, verses 8 and 9. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. So you see that created all things? That's the same word being used here, that you were created in Christ Jesus. So you are the creation of God the Father. You are created in Christ Jesus. But this reference to being created in Christ Jesus, this is not your physical creation. Yeah, you were physically created by God. But this, once again, just in light of this entire passage from verses 1 all the way down to verse 10, you were recreated spiritually. You were created spiritually in Christ Jesus. And this is the same power that God used for all of creation. You are his workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus. But you're creating Christ Jesus for a specific purpose. What is that purpose? Look at verse 10. You're creating Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Good works. Now, this is in contrast to the last verse. Because verse 9, we just got through reading that our salvation is not a result of works. And here we read that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, there are some that actually have said that this is a contradiction. Because he's espousing good works and then verse 9, he's condemning works. No, this is not a contradiction at all. This is the difference between the root of your salvation and the fruit of your salvation. See, the root of your salvation is all God. There is no good works that you did to contribute to that. The fruit of your salvation should be good works. Now, we might look around the world and say, well, we see a lot of people who are not Christians, but they seem to be doing good works. We might look around the world and See that people are devoting themselves to the cause of world hunger, trying to bring world peace. We have humanitarians who are trying to do good for the poor and the homeless. Homeless. Uh, we have a lot of people all around the world that appear to be doing good. And so we look at that and say, well, how could that not be good works? How is it that God would not honor that? And I'll tell you why God would not honor that, because those folks do not believe in God. So they're doing it not for the purpose of God, but they're doing it for their own purposes or for their own righteousness. 
They're not doing it on account of God. If they're doing it on account of God, they would recognize God, first of all, and they would recognize their need for God and his son, Jesus Christ. See, the difference between someone who devotes his life to humanitarian purposes, who doesn't know Christ, versus someone who devotes his life to humanitarian purposes for Christ, there's a difference. Because people can go around the world and devote themselves to all those causes. But the person who does it for Christ not only recognizes who the true God is and who deserves all the glory and all the credit, but also recognizes that those good works should be an instrument in order to bring the gospel to those people that need it. That is the difference. People around the world, when we look around us, there's a lot of people that appear to be doing good. But if they do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, they are no different than any of the descriptions that we saw from verses 1 through 3. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are following after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air. And make no mistake, there is no one more than Satan who wants you to feel righteous for your good works. Satan wants you to to devote yourself to good works and say, I'm okay. In fact, this past week, I just heard about a church on the East Coast called Rutgers um, Presbyterian. Don't let the names throw you off because it's not Presbyterian, it's not a church. But they call themselves Rutgers Presbyterian Church. And what's happening there is that when you go there, the message is not about God or anything written in the Bible. The message is about earthly causes that everyone believes in. Climate control, right? Global warming, um, social justice. You know, racial equality. And I'm not saying that these things are bad things. But in that church, they say that they don't care who you believe in. They don't care if you're atheist or whether you believe in God or you believe in a different God. They don't even care what your alignment is. You are welcome in that church if you believe in the same temporal causes that they believe in. Someone could look at that and say, well, yeah, that's, those are good works. Well, no, they're not good works. Because they don't start first and foremost with God and his word. And it's also an example. It's a reminder to us that when seeking to do the good works of God, uh, because the question as we look at this, we're created for good works. Well, what are those good works? Paul, tell us. Well, read through Ephesians. Uh, Paul will tell you what those good works are. In fact, starting in chapter 4, when he says, I urge you, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. That is the good work of God that he has called you to walk in. That is the good work that God expects from you. But that is the good work that you cannot do unless you know God first. And while we have churches out there that focus so much of their time on efforts that are nowhere espoused in the scriptures or at least not emphasized in the scriptures what we need to do is we need to focus upon what God's word says rather than focusing upon what it doesn't say do what God tells you to do don't focus on doing what God doesn't tell you to do and if you want to know what it is that God expects of you you need to know the scriptures we need to continue applying ourselves to the word of God Because so many Christians, when we talked about purpose earlier on in this message, you could be wandering around with no purpose in life. And sometimes we meet people like that. You ask them, what's your purpose? And they go blank. They don't know what their purpose is. And usually a person that doesn't know their purpose usually is not very productive, right? We don't want to be that way as Christians. You don't want to be spiritually without a purpose. You want to have a clear purpose. And the only purpose is right here in the scriptures as God defines to us. And so Paul here is making it very clear. We are created for good works. 
But as we continue reading, we are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand. So this is another reason why these works are not anything that we take credit for. You see, when we talk about our own works, when we talk about our own ideas, when we talk about our own innovations and, and ways that we can glorify God, but we're not going off of Scripture. We're just relying upon our own wisdom. And then we have room to start boasting in what we've come up with. But no, what we see here in Scripture is that the good works that God has designed for you has already been prepared. They don't, it's not required that you become innovative. You know, it's not required for you to, to be in a think tank or let's, let's have a brainstorming session on how we can glorify God today. You don't need to do that. There is no brainstorming session. You know, there is no use. There is no need for imagination. There is no need to wait for some vision from heaven to tell you how to glorify God. We have it written all over Scripture. We have it told to us all over Scripture how to glorify God. And it says God prepared these good works beforehand. Beforehand. Well, certainly before you were even saved. Before you even came to faith, those good works were prepared. And in fact, if you look back at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, look back at Ephesians 1, verse 4. Paul wrote, just as he chose us in him before when? The foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So even before the creation account, he chose us. And even before the creation account, he designed the good works that you would walk in. It was already created by him. And it's revealed to us through his word. We take no credit in it in terms of earning our salvation. And we don't even take credit for walking in it after becoming believers. All glory belongs to God. All glory belongs to God, the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who has sealed us and works within us. So we walk in these works as which God prepared beforehand. And then look at the end of verse 10. It says, so that, so that, so that we would walk in them. These works that God prepared beforehand, these works that God prepared before the foundation of the world, which we had nothing to do with in terms of identifying what those good works are. Those good works that were prepared before the foundation of the world are designed so that you would walk in them. And this is in contrast to verse two. Remember, verse one said you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you walked after the course of this world and after the prince of the power of the air. That is how you once walked, But now this is how you are to walk as believers. You no longer walk according to the world. You no longer walk following after Satan. You walk in the good works that God has designed for you. And we, again, take no credit in it. All glory belongs to God. And you know what? When it comes to God's purpose, this may not be the purpose in life that sounds extravagant to people. This may not be the purpose that really, you know, leads to an aha moment with people. This is not one of those purposes that just jumps off the page to the unbeliever and says, now that's what I want. No. This, but this is the purpose that God designed for us. And I'll tell you this. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. There's nothing wrong with wanting joy in this life. 
There's nothing wrong with wanting to enjoy your family, to your, your friends, and, and the things of this world. We know all good and perfect things come from up above. We know all things are provided to us by God for us to enjoy. But, but, without pursuing his will, without pursuing his purpose, without fulfilling his purpose, you will not experience the true joy of God. The joy and the peace that surpasses all understanding. You want to be more like Christ? If I asked all of you, if I asked each and every single one of you as Christians, do you want to be more like Christ? I'm sure you would all say yes. But the way God has us to grow into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ is through the works that he has designed for us and also through how we respond to all the situations and trials in our life. Because your good works is not simply going out and doing something for someone who needs help. That's certainly a good work. But your good work is how you behave towards one another. Your good work is you praying for one another. Your good work is thinking of one another, helping one another, knowing when your fellow brothers or sisters in Christ are in need. Your good work is, is being in each other's lives. You know, one of the tragedies of the church um, that I've seen in many places that I've been in is that we have people that come to church on Sundays, but they're not involved in each other's lives the rest of the days of the week. The, the good works of God is for us to grow together as a church. In fact, one of the reasons why I chose Ephesians is because it provides us God's vision for the church. I was asked so many times, what's your vision for the church? What's your vision for the church when I came? My vision for the church is God's vision for the church. And your, the vision, God's vision for the church has to start with what you understand with regards to your salvation. What you understand with regards to what you were saved from, what you were saved to, and what your purpose is now. And then when you read through chapters 4 through 6, which we'll get there at some point, when you read through chapters 4 through 6, you see all the commandments that God has for us, how we are to live as children of God. And you will find that how we are to live is never divorced from the rest of the body of Christ, but it's always in conjunction with the rest of the body of Christ. So we are called to walk in good works. That is the purpose that God has for us. And brothers and sisters, I would urge you to make this your purpose. And don't just get creative with regards to the good works of God. Come to the scriptures. This is one of the reasons why we devote ourselves to the scriptures. We need to be able to understand what God's word says, and then we need to be able to take that word and be able to apply it into our lives, and apply it into our lives within the context of the church as well. When we do that, then truly we are living for the purposes of God and his son, Jesus Christ. After all, we are the body of Christ, are we not? And the body is not just one person, is it? The body is all of us collectively together. And so this is the way we are called to walk. And when we think about the idea that, that we have been created in Christ Jesus, that we are the workmanship, we are the creation of God, we are created in Christ Jesus with the same power that God created the heavens and the earth. It is a reminder to us in passages like 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we are a new creation. We are a new creation. In fact, let's turn there. One book over to the left is 2 Corinthians. So we're right there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 16. Paul writes this, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, we now 
Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are a new creature. We are a new creation. We have been created in Christ Jesus for his purpose. And then look again at Ephesians. Go back to Ephesians, but look at chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Sorry, there were two books apart, not just one book apart. But Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 22. Chapter 4, and actually starting in verse 20, chapter 4, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, we read, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as his truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on, verse 24, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God that has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We see the word created there. You are created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And so you are to lay aside the old self, you are to put on the new self, and then in between, in verse 23, you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, which requires you to be in the Word, to be in prayer, to be continuing to grow in your knowledge of God's will. And so these, are, these passages here are so powerful to us from verses 1 to 10, because it not only lays the foundation of the gospel, But it helps us to understand that we were not only unworthy of the gospel and that God did all the work, but now we have a new purpose in light of that. And so by the time you get to chapter 4, verse 1, it says that you are to live in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. That now becomes obvious. Yes, God has recreated us. He created us in Christ Jesus. He saved us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we have a new purpose now, so let's now walk in them. And that is why we have the scriptures. That's why we have the Bible. And so these good works that we walk in, it's not a cause for boasting because God created them beforehand. And we recognize that even Christ told the disciples, you may remember this up in the room, Christ told his disciples that greater works than I, you will do. He told the disciples that they would do even greater works. Well, how is that possible? It's not talking about the miracles. I mean, it's just talking about the impact that the disciples had in bringing the gospel from, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the rest of the world. And for us, we are not only the, the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ within the body, but also outside the body and bringing the word to those who do not believe. These, these are our greatest purposes. As Christians, our lives are all about people. It's all about people. It's all about the people within the church, and it's all about the people who do not know God. Our belongings... Our material items, you can enjoy them, but recognize that's no longer your purpose. Enjoy those things. Enjoy your time with your family. Enjoy your, your, your vacations and, and whatnot, but remember your overriding purpose, and that is to walk in the good works of our Lord. Now, if you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, then let me take this time right now to urge you that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That 
There is going to come a time after you have died that you will stand in judgment before God the Father. And you will have to give an account to God the Father over the life that you have lived. And this is not a matter of being able to weigh your good works versus your bad works. Because all of it, in God's eyes, were worthless. All of it was like filthy rags. The fact that you have sinned is proof that you are a sinner. And we all deserve eternal wrath. We all deserve the fire of hell for all eternity for the sins that we have committed against God the Father. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world. And if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in order to pay for your sins, if you believe that that is the only way that you can stand before God, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, if you are willing to repent of your sins and turn towards the Lord Jesus Christ, if you understand all this to be true, then I would call for you to respond in repentance and belief. Follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop wasting your life with worldly ambitions, with worldly pursuits, which are all going to fall away anyway. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have eternity promised to us. We have greater treasures awaiting us in heaven that we could possibly imagine here on earth. The things that we covet here on earth are nothing compared to what awaits us in heaven. First and foremost, to be with our Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be a wonderful, a marvelous blessing to be able to see the glory of God, to finally see our Savior face to face, the one who was willing to humbly submit himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, in order that he would give you spiritual life out of your deadness in trespasses and sins, in order that you would be able to spend eternity with him. Do not delay that decision. If you see these truths, if you understand these truths, if you understand that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that he is the Son of God, that he indeed paid for the price of sins upon the cross, you don't need to work for that salvation. You simply just need to respond to belief. You need to believe and repent and follow after him. Do not leave without talking to myself or one of the deacons. In fact, uh, deacons and deacons' wives, can you stand up for a moment? Um, ladies or gentlemen, look around. If, if you need someone to talk to, you can talk to me. You can talk to one of these uh, deacons or their wives who is standing up. They'd be more than happy to pray for you. They'd be more than happy to talk to you and help you understand what is expected of you. Thank you. And for the rest of us, this should bring us into... Ongoing humility before the Lord. Ongoing humility, and when I say humility, it's not necessarily thinking less about yourself, but it's thinking less of yourself. Thinking more about God. Thinking more about other people. Recognizing that we've already been given the greatest gift that anyone can ever receive. The battle's already been won for us. We simply need to just walk in faith. To walk in his works and to do so together as the body of Christ. Let's pray.